Tillamook Chocolate Collection Ice Cream is a total chocolate game changer. We start with unbelievably creamy dark chocolate ice cream. Then we add different chocolate treats, like chocolate cookies, chocolate cake, or chocolate brownies to make four decadent chocolate flavors. Because sometimes the thing that pairs best with chocolate <laughs> is more chocolate. Tillamook Chocolate Collection Ice Cream. Extraordinary Dairy. Who doesn't love a classic chocolate chip cookie? Famous Amos has been making them since the 70s, 1975 to be exact. With semi-sweet chocolate chips and a satisfying crunch, it's everything classic in one bite-sized cookie. And fans couldn't get enough. That's right. You'll find our original recipe, the one you know and love, in every bag of Famous Amos original chocolate chip cookies. Find Famous Amos anywhere you buy your favorite snacks. This episode is brought to you by Progressive, where drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average. Plus, auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Quote now at Progressive.com to see if you could save. Progressive Casualty Insurance and Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. The year is 1993. And this is the story of how one man stood up to a powerful business. No, I'm not talking about a guitar player standing up to a drug lord. I'm talking about Robert Rodriguez standing up to the Hollywood system and endeavoring to make a film for less than $9,000. The film, El Mariachi. everyone and welcome to unspooled welcome to unspooled where we unspool the greatest films to see if they are classics or just remembered that way i'm amy nicholson i'm a film critic i write for the new york times and i am paul Shear. uh i am an actor and a comedian and i write for no one uh except for letterbox one sentence reviews on letterbox that's pretty much my my uh my bread and butter right there but amy I'm so excited to talk to you today about this film, El Mariachi. And I want to talk to everybody who's been listening to the show. Thank you so much. If you're just finding the show, keep on recommending it to your friends. Make sure you're following us on Apple uh, Podcasts. Make sure you're always following us at Unspooled Pod on Instagram and Unspooled on Twitter. We are always uh, retweeting your comments, keeping up to date. And the conversation continues after every episode on our Discord at discord.gg slash Paul Shear. There's an entire uh, unspooled section there. And I love the conversations there week after week. But more importantly, make sure that you're giving it up for our amazing graphic artist, Kim Troxall. You'll get to see her work every single week. You also get to see it on the Unspooled website under the art section. Uh, she has been making amazing art for us for so long. And if you like her art, you got to get our playing cards, which are all of her work on a playing card. It is a beautiful set of playing cards. You can get that at podswag.com. Just go under the unspooled store. Uh, I'm loving, I'm loving that every week we don't know what we're going to get. And it always uh, makes me smile whenever I see what she sends us. Always more creative than I ever think it will ever be. <laughs> me too. 
Although, Kim, you do have my permission, if we ever do another John Wick movie, to put my face on a dead puppy. (laughs) You know, and Kim is actually really interesting because Kim is somebody that is, you know, working her regular job, but also doing something independently for us. And we love that. And we love that spirit so much that we're dedicating this film to her because this is about a person, uh, Robert Rodriguez, who wanted to make a film and figured out how to do it based on what he had in front of him. Making art. Making art with nothing but your skills and your talents. That's right. Um, But today we're talking about a filmmaker who I think has been an inspiration to many filmmakers uh, after him, but also inspired by a lot of the filmmakers we talked about here on the show. And this film, to me, El Mariachi, is just as interesting about how it was made as much as it is about what was made. Yeah, this is a fascinating moment we're about to jump back to in the 90s when it suddenly felt like people who controlled a lot of money in Hollywood were like, wait, who's interesting and what are they doing? And can this system be shaken up a little bit at all? We're, we're kind of tired of how things are. Who's new? Who's got something to say? And it also goes to show you that you can make a very big idea on a small budget. And there are so many factors of how... And why this works, and I think what we keep on coming back to when we see a film like this is what makes us lean in. Sure, there's a lot of things that don't look as great as they could look, but what is that secret sauce that Robert Rodriguez has that sets us above the rest? There's plenty of movies like this, but why is this one so good? I'm excited to figure this out with you. And I'm excited to learn some cooking tips from Robert Rodriguez himself, because he is a man who will probably tell you how to make a sauce if you ask him. All right, well, Amy, I'm going to get out my guitar and let's... Unspool it. The year is 1993, and Robert Rodriguez isn't sure if he's a genius or an idiot who's about to ruin his career before it even begins. Now, let's jump back two years. Robert and his best friend from high school, Carlos Gallardo, are 21-ish years old when they have the idea to make a practice movie. Three practice movies, actually. The first one, they'll shoot for nothing and sell it to a Mexican straight-to-video company for enough money to shoot the second movie. And then that one, they'll also sell to a Mexican video company for money to make, you guessed it, a third one, which will be sold to a Mexican video company. And then finally, after all of that, they can take their best clips from these three practice films and then cut them into a sizzle reel, which can help Robert Rodriguez get his first actual professional job. That is the plan, but it doesn't work out like that. The first part does happen exactly how Robert and Carlos imagined it. Carlos takes the money that he made from an accident. He combines that with some money that he made from selling land that he inherited. Robert has almost no money, and he's been working two part-time jobs to support himself and his wife while he's in school at UT, so he enrolls himself in a month-long medical study where he'll get room and board and mysterious pills and blood tests and fecal tests and urine tests and time to write his script and earn himself $3,000. Robert and Carlos take their combined money, they drive across the Texas border to Carlos's hometown of Acuna, Mexico. They have a budget of $9,000 to make a movie. They managed to shoot the whole thing in two weeks for $7,225. And the movie is El Mariachi. Carlos stars as the mariachi, an actual mariachi, who shows up in a small town in Mexico hoping to get a job playing the guitar. However, an escaped murderer named Azul has also just arrived in town with a guitar case full of weapons and a plan to assassinate the local drug lord, Moco. Now, 
Moko sends his men after the guy who is trying to kill him. His men wind up finding the innocent musician who winds up killing them and more of Moko's men and falling in love and seeing his love die and finding a pit bull. Sound familiar? Unlike John Wick, El Mariachi has no money for real actors, only people who will work for free in the mornings and agree to leave before he has to feed them lunch. Now, Robert does everything else behind the camera. The final movie is not up to the quality that Robert wants to achieve, but he's satisfied enough to cut a trailer. And that gets in the hands of an agent in L.A., a guy he's heard of from a friend, thinking, hey, El Mariachi is a business card that says, remember my name in a few years from now when I have the money and experience to make something worth the cost of admission. So how did Robert wind up here on February 26, 1993, with the movie that he never thought was good enough to be shown in actual theaters being shown in actual theaters? And Robert thinking, oh, man, this $7,000 movie does not have real actors. And now everybody knows about it and me and the pressure is on. And this could be really embarrassing. We're going to get into that. But for now, what you need to know is that the feelings inside of Robert Rodriguez are basically, I made this little film. I was happy with this little film. I really, really intended to let this little film go, leave my life, disappear, and instead, oh no, what if this is going to be the film that will be with me forever? I mean, you might say that this mix of push-pull emotions is a lot like the number one song in the charts, Whitney Houston, and I will always love you. But I know I'll think of you every step of the way. And will always love you. Let's just take a moment to imagine this. Your your first raw, rough thing being shown with woo, so many flowers. And yet people to this day still being like, El Mariachi, that's my favorite Robert Rodriguez film. I get it, but I also think this is a director who has a standard that no one else has. You know, independent film, especially in 1993, looks like this. Not exactly like this. This looks a little bit more low budget, but it has a sense of fun and style. You can see so much behind it. And I feel like Robert Rodriguez is kind of coming to this like George Lucas came to the Star Wars films. Like, oh, if I could only go back, if I could only add some special effects. Like, But doesn't realize that the charm is that he didn't have all that stuff. The charm is that he was able to shoot this using a wheelchair, that he found creative ways to make this work. Yes, the acting is a little bit off. And sure, some of the shots aren't as pretty as they will become as his career goes. But this is a amazing first outing for this director. I get it. I get why he exploded. Yeah, same. I mean, I absolutely get it, too. It's like you watch this movie and what you're seeing on screen is just so much creativity. You're sort of like, how did he pull that off? How did he pull that off? How did you pull that off? And the thing with Robert Rodriguez is he's very happy to tell you, here's how I pulled it off. A lot of things are screwed up, but you know what? I worked with it. Here we go. This is my actor, Carlos. He's going to run up the stairs and throw his guitar case. But you'll see that he misses in this first take. But that's all right, because the first part of it was fine. Him running up the stairs was good. I'm not going to redo the whole take. That's a waste of film. What I'll do is just punch in a little bit closer, have him toss it again, and intercut the two shots so it looks like I have two cameras running at the same time. 
And, and that kind of forthcomingness about like, I'm just a guy making movies, I think is really part of the charm of him and of this whole era. Because you're right. This is 1993. This is a moment of like a bunch of young people coming out all at once with their like, uh, look what I just did. Hello, my name is Kevin Smith. And what I think you're seeing are filmmakers who've been inspired by some of the best in the biz, right? And Robert Rodriguez understands that and he's figuring out ways, how can I capture things that I love? And one of the things I love about this film is to make it look like he had multiple cameras, he would essentially freeze a scene, move the camera to a different location, and then continue shooting the scene. Like he didn't do two setups. He basically just freezed, moved, and then continued shooting, <laughs> which gives this movie an amazing scope. Yeah. Or he like would do videos explaining how like in a conversation scene where he's got like, you know, wider shots and more close up shots, he's just zooming in as the guy does one take of talking and then like cutting with other shots so that you can't tell that it's just exactly the same take, not even him moving the camera closer, not even him changing lenses. Oh, yeah. And, and even to record the dialogue and the sounds, right? The actors would do a shot for the camera, then immediately repeat their dialogue and actions for the microphone so it could actually sync up. I think that's one of the big things that you see oftentimes in these smaller films is that the sound doesn't really sync perfectly. And you get this really down and dirty, fun movie that shows you it is a calling card. It is something that gets people excited. And by the way, it's really fun to watch. I I, I loved this book when I was a kid uh, called Down and Dirty Pictures. It was kind of about Miramax and Sundance and the rise of independent film. And people were trying all this stuff. They were able to do things that weren't really available to them. And yes, this is shot on 16. And then we're going to be coming into the advent of video. But what Robert Rodriguez is doing here is pretty much on the shoulders of what Robert Townsend did with Hollywood Shuffle. Like he made his own calling card. How do, do I want to be viewed here in the business? The story is simple. And I have to say that, yeah, sure. Some of the acting is a little bit wonky in parts, but there's a charm. And I keep on coming back to that. There's a charm here, this movie that makes you lean in. And there's a reason why this movie was distributed en masse. And it wasn't just like, uh, something you found at a blockbuster video. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting, right? Because like what I find so striking when you watch this film is seeing in it, you know, yes, the story itself is like a violent story. You know, lots of gunplay, lots of lots of bullets, lots of squibs. But what always stands out to me is the comedy of it. You feel in here that Robert yes. Rodriguez is a comedy director making a violent movie because he thinks that's what's going to sell to the Mexican home video market. You know, it's sort of like now we're like a horror movie is kind of your gateway. I think he was thinking an action movie for this audience is kind of my gateway. And he's like, how can I take an action movie and, you know, give people what will sell, but make it my own? We, one of the things that was really important to him is like he didn't want to just make something that leaned completely into machismo. You know, that's why mm -hmm. like his mariachi walks around ordering soda pop. He's like, I didn't want to just be like lazy, tough guy who drinks and smokes and write that stock character. Like, how can I take this structure of gunplay and make it feel like a Robert, Robert Rodriguez film. And it's that comedy that I think like just shoots all the way through it, you know? Absolutely. When I was watching it, it really reminded me of fear and loathing, like in the sense that there are these heightened images that you see, this kind of world of sped up footage or just bizarre character behavior. Even from the very beginning, when you see the, um, I don't even know if she's a police lieutenant, but whoever runs the- uh, The jail? 
the jail, like the way that she even interacts in the space and the way that she's shot. It's not naturalistic. It's it's bigger. It, this movie does feel like it has a heightened sense of reality. And you get this amazing uh, cut twos in the dream sequences where we go from a bouncing ball to a rolling head. You know, there's something about this. And I think you're right. Like comedy is part of it, but also stylistic choices that make it feel like it's not just about who's getting killed. It's like, how can I show something fun? And maybe that's by necessity. Maybe that is just because he wants to show like a flavor that he has, which is what he does have. I mean, when you look at Machete and you look at, I love this new movie that he has, We Can Be Heroes, which is kind of this, uh, the superheroes are taken hostage and the kids of the superheroes have to save their parents. It's great. It's super fun. And my kids are laughing. It. He's got a great sense of, fun and big action pieces and something that I think you miss often in movies like this. Yeah. I mean, I feel like the alternate career path for Robert Rodriguez, if he hadn't had this like brainstorm about getting into like the Mexican action straight to video market is I feel like he's a guy who just like straight up always from the beginning wanted to make pictures about kids, pictures for kids, big family comedies, you know, the, the short that really puts him on the map and he's like a film student in Austin is a short called bedhead that stars like, his brothers and I mean he's because he, he's from like a family of ten. In right. fact, I wasn't sure I was going to mention this. I will. I'm pretty sure I went to senior prom with one of his brothers, but I can't remember for sure if it was a brother or a nephew. He has a big family. He's from San Antonio. I went to the Catholic girls' school related to St. Anthony's, the boys' school that he went to. He was the videographer for the football team before I was there. I have a bunch of still shots I took of their football team. I don't remember if they were very good or not, but it's a. I've always had a tiny bit of resentment in my heart, I will just say this, for his image as an Austin filmmaker, because San Antonio has so few cool things. And it was important to us to have a cool thing. We never really got it. Now that I see what's happened to Austin, I'm sort of glad that San Antonio was protected and that Austin can take all the all the tech money and the bullets and the expensive real estate. San Antonio can stay alone. I love this, Amy. What a bomb. What a, what a shocker. Five years into the show, we have a, a personal connection here. I love it. I know. I mean, he was already making movies by then. Like Desperado and everything had already come out. And so had Dust Till Dawn. But it wasn't... Yeah. It was just sort of like random fun fact. But yeah, the I pulled actually a clip of Bedhead. So you can kind of get the tenor of like the proto Robert Rodriguez, which sounds like a sort of what he's kind of doing today. A little girl has been getting bullied around and she's sort of disgusted by her older brother. She can't stand him. He's got this horrible Bedhead. He uh, clunks her on the head, and now she has the powers to control his behavior. At this point, I realized I had the power to do anything I wanted. I could bring peace to the Middle East. I'll become the first Mexican-American female president of the United States. But first things first. And the first thing I'm going to do is get rid of that bedhead. And I just got to say... All I want in life is more directors who want to make awesome movies for kids that make kids love movies. And I am glad that that is his lane. But I do think it's funny. He got kind of shunted into the world or introduced to the world as like an ultra-violent action director. So funny. I actually pitched Robert Rodriguez a show that I still want to do. I shouldn't even talk about it, but I will and say that it is exactly that. Like for him... It was basically Mr. Wizard for filmmaking to teach kids how to do what he did. I think we have a lot of adult filmmakers who make movies for children, but not through the eyes of children. And I'm not saying that El Mariachi is through the eyes of children, but I think 
there's a playfulness, there's a sense of fun here. And you get the sense that he was a kid who wanted to make movies, who now is making movies. And there's a joy there. And whether that is, you know, adapting Sin City, whether that is making Machete, whether that's doing From Dusk Till Dawn, or like I said, these kid movies now, like he's constantly challenging himself, going out of the box. And there is always something, even if I don't love it, like I didn't love Alita Battle Angel, but I enjoyed the hell out of it. Like I watched it and I was like, he can make a really fun film. Everything he touches is fun. In El Mariachi, part of the story is how it was made. I mean, the making of it is as interesting as the actual film. It's true. And I feel like that's something that so up his vibe. I mean, because like right when this comes out, he's even doing things like 10-minute film school, you know, where he like kind of comes into a room of kids and he's like, here's what you do. Morning class. Now, a filmmaker, a famous filmmaker a while back said something about everything you need to know about film, you can learn in about a week. He was being generous. You can learn it in 10 minutes. Set your watches. We'll be out of here in 10, kids. I also think there's something in Robert Rodriguez that makes him like, you can see the older-ish brother in him where he's like, he loves to tell people how to do things, but in a nice way. Okay, so you want to be a filmmaker? Yes. Wrong. You are a filmmaker. The moment you think about that you want to be a filmmaker, you're that. Make yourself a business card that says you're a filmmaker, pass them out to your friends. As soon as you get that over with and you got it in your mind that you're one, you'll be one. You'll start thinking like one. Don't dream about being a filmmaker. You are a filmmaker. Now let's get down to business. As an only child, maybe I'm guessing or projecting here, but I do feel like when I hear Robert Rodriguez talk to people... I sense in him somebody who grew up with a lot of siblings and loves explaining things and raising up people and giving them ideas. I mean, he even makes like videos that go on his like special features where he tells people how to make breakfast tacos, which I watched this whole one in full because this is a big thing when you are from our area of Texas. You know, there's a breakfast tacos are an art. The breakfast tacos in L.A. are delicious, but they are not breakfast tacos. He walks you through proper breakfast tacos. My favorite meal of all. First step, flour tortillas. Get those flour tortillas, the the ones you usually find at the store, you know, they feel like rubber. Get them out of your fridge and throw them in the trash. They are garbage. I'm going to show you how to make homemade flour tortillas. My grandmother's recipe, Momo Severina. When I saw the video, I was like, yes, yes. Well done. Well done, sir. He seems like a pretty good cook, to be honest. Look, it looks good to me. I don't even know if I've had an official breakfast taco. I've had a lot of people who make Texas-style breakfast tacos, but this this looks way better if it has more than two ingredients i will call bullshit on that taco wow that's my very purest rule wow okay look at this (laughs) hear that it's the call of the crave and when the crave calls you know what to do try the five dollar bacon bundle Because the only thing better than a White Castle slider is a White Castle slider topped with crispy hickory smoked bacon. So pick any two of either the bacon cheese slider, 1921 bacon cheese slider, or chicken bacon ranch slider. And also get a small fry for just $5 with the $5 bacon bundle. White Castle. Follow your crave.
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I guess, though, the idea that I keep coming back to is when you see a film like this, what is stopping you from making your big idea? We've talked in the past about how independent film has gotten very um, pedestrian in a way, right? It's a lot of this mumblecore. We're all in one location. We're just talking about our feelings. We're in a midlife young crisis. You know, it's. It, it ends with somebody on a car, on a bus, looking out the window, and where will my journey take you? I don't know, because we don't have an ending. Yeah, it's all kind of like bastardized versions of The Graduate instead of stuff like this. Or it's rare when you get to see something like this. And I think that that's why when you see a great horror film that's a low-budget film, like we were talking about uh, Skin or Rink, it's like, oh, yeah, right, you can still do big ideas in independent cinema. And this was shot on film, right? The $7,000 was spent on film for the camera. That is where he put all of his money. Not to say that you should do all that, but you can make something bigger. You should be inspired by it. And I think that, you know, Robert Rodriguez kind of hit at this perfect time because this is a moment, like you said, you have Quentin Tarantino, you have Kevin Smith, and I think his the doors are open for him to do whatever he wants after this. And it's interesting, like, that his first choice is to kind of redo El Mariachi. Yeah, to do Desperado. You know, to swap out poor Carlos Gallardo for Antonio Banderas and to have Selma Hayek in the film. And it's, in there you almost see the comedy even more. You see, you, you kind of feel like, okay, he got money, now he can have slightly better gunplay and good lighting and actors. And that seems to be like, oh, and fun sets. It feels, it feels like he really wanted to put his energy there. Yeah, I think that you see his influences more in Desperado, but they're all based here. You know, what we were saying is funny, I think are also homage, you know, because he's doing a spaghetti Western, a modern day spaghetti Western, which is a style that really has been left behind. I don't I don't know if spaghetti Westerns were trying to be funny or trying to make their dollar go or trying to make the action work a little bit better. But these little moments become like a distinctive style of his entire career. Like they're they don't go away. Yes, he's got you know, he doesn't have to use water guns anymore. But everything that he did do in this movie, you can see in what he continues to do to this day. I mean, what I kind of see when I watch it, what I feel like I see as his influences are Raising Arizona and like oh, Evil yeah. Dead 2, right? Or Evil Dead mm-hmm. 1 too, but like Evil Dead 1 and Evil Dead 2, this idea of like, how can I announce that I am a presence through also my style, also my visuals, also my like kind of rough and rowdiness. I mean, that he uses a lot of those kind of like fast moving camera things that like you see in Evil Dead 2 and that you see in Raising Arizona that I feel like he doesn't so much put his like energy in getting great performances from his actors. I think he do- I think they do actually fine 
for non-professional actors. You know, there I think are, they're fun. There are kinda... some that really work and there are some that feel like you are watching like a straight up Tommy Wiseau film, like, right? But not awful. It just, and I don't think he sticks on them for too long. There's something, yeah. again, charming about their like kind of mediocre acting. Yeah, he doesn't lean on them. I think he's smart no, enough right. to not have written a script that leans on them. You know, he's more like, pay attention to how I'm editing this. Pay attention to me. Pay attention to how I'm moving the camera. And, and I, I admired that way of working with your limitations. I mean, you got to say, like, watching this, I was like, man, that actor who plays Moko, you know, the mm-hmm. the head bad guy, uh, Peter Markhart. I was like, that guy does not speak Spanish. <laughs> you know, you could kind of hear that, like, the Spanish isn't accurate. But then I loved, like, actually going back and rereading um, his book. I'd forgotten so much of, like, Robert Rodriguez's book, you know, um, what was it? Rebel Without a Crew. Right. And he's talking about how he met that actor. And basically, like, Rebel Without a Crew, if you haven't read it, is, like, his whole diary of this time. Like, from raising the money to going and shooting the film to what it was like when people in Hollywood started to see the film. It comes out in, like, 95, like, right at the beginning of his career. And he talks about, you know, this month-long medical study that he was in, which just sounds fascinating. Like, I think it was for Lipitor, but he had done, like, many medical studies before this. He did one where they were allowed to, like, stab him on both of his arms, like puncture little holes in his hands to see if they had a cream that would help like heal his cream. So they had to stab him twice and one of them got like a healing cream and one of them didn't. Oh, And like, yeah, he did like another one uh, where it was like for antidepressants and he had to like move into this place for like nine days and take these antidepressants. And he said, everybody just went really kind of angry. Everybody got mad at each other and then they finally got to move out. And then he did this month long one that was like $3,000 for Lipitor. And um, his code name there, like everybody had a colored shirt to say what part of the study they were in. Like, are you the Mm -hmm. control group? Are you on the pill? Are you on a low-fat diet? The low-fat diet guys were wearing teal. He said they were really angry all the time because they were starving. He, I think, was taking the pill, I guess. So his code name was Red 11. And that's why he named a movie Red 11 later on recently to kind of remind himself of like where he came from. But uh, this is a long way of getting to Peter Marquardt. Peter Marquardt was just the guy in the next bed during this whole month-long study. He was his roommate. And basically, while they're, like, trapped inside this medical research facility, they're just renting movies. And so, you know, they rent, like, Steven Soderbergh's Sex, Lies, and Videotape. And Robert Rodriguez is like, oh, this guy kind of looks like James Spader. And then they rent Paul Verhoeven, Flesh and Blood. And he's like, he also kind of looks like Rutger Hauer. And then they rent The Dead Zone. He's like, oh, it also reminds me of Christopher Walken. I'm just going to give this guy a part of my movie. And that is the story of why this guy is in it. Oh, my God. I love that they were <laughs> bunk mates at a medical research facility. You know, uh, you know, in 2014, he passed away only at 50 years old. And he had been in uh, a handful more of Robert's films. And I really like him in this. You know, and I have to say, I really like Carlos Gallardo who really holds this movie together at first through a lot of voiceover. I feel this voiceover is very good and connects me to this this story. Like, he grounds me after seeing a few opening scenes that are fun, but they seem a little bit bigger, larger than life. And, um, you know, there's a part of me that, not aches, but it is a bummer to see that, you know, he's replaced, you know, by Antonio Banderas. I think that Antonio Banderas is fantastic in his films and I love their working relationship. 
uh, since. But, you know, I wanted to talk about that as well. Like, what is it like to see somebody go forward as this director, this new Hollywood guy, but the star of this film, the person who he was doing this with, doesn't have that same trajectory? It is kind of a bummer, right? Because this movie doesn't exist without Gallardo. You know, not only is it made in his own hometown, like he's doing so much producing work, especially while while Robert Rodriguez is like in a medical facility for a month writing the script. You know, he's like, Gallardo was the one going to the police chief and being like, can we use your guns? And the police chief is like, what? What if I just give you my guns and then you guys like are lying about making a movie and you take our police guns and you go rob a bank, you know, and like and he's like figuring how to work around that. He's like, OK, well, you can have the mayor send some cops to watch us use your guns and then maybe your local cops can cameo in the film. Ta-da. I mean, Gallardo is the guy who had already been in Acuna a few like earlier doing like kind of like low level, maybe PA work on the movie like Water for Chocolate. And so because of that, he's the guy who's like, I'm going to use the name of the special effects gun like water for chocolate. I'm going to call it Paramount. Pretend that guy needs more squibs and be like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like water for chocolate. Send us some squibs. And they did. They just like mailed them fake bullets and squibs. Like his hustle is huge on this. Like you really, you really can't underestimate it. And I do think he does a pretty decent job having a camera on him. And you don't feel like this guy should not have a camera on him. A hundred percent in a movie where literally Robert Rodriguez is casting like a local newscaster. Have you heard about this? Like this idea that, right? So there was a newscaster who was speaking ill about the film. So he put him in the movie so he wouldn't like talk badly about it. Like I love, again, this is creative thinking at every level. Make sure you get everybody on board. You know, um, the, you know this idea that like that's the hotel owner and the bartender actually yeah, were both two local of them. News. They were yeah. both journalists. They were both journalists, and he was like, "You're mad at me? Okay, well you can have a part in the film," which is so creative. You can hear uh, one of them right here in the scene where the mariachi just comes into town and introduces himself. My música. Por qué? Soy un mariachi. And I got to say, I think the journalist does a pretty good job. He's like, like I think he's not just a newspaper reporter. I think he was like a TV reporter. He does okay in front of a camera. No, I agree. And, you know, just to kind of just go back to Carlos for a second. He did uh, become the co-producer of that Mexico trilogy. That's Desperado and Once Upon a Time in Mexico. Um, And he had a minor role in Desperado. Uh, he plays the El Mariachi's friend, Campa. He's been in a bunch of different other films, but I always look at a film like this and think about the actor, and, and I just, there's a bit of, ah, oh, look at this. Like, you know, this guy put his blood, sweat, and tears into this as well and did a very good job. And a majority of what we talk about is how great the directing is. But I will say that he grounds this love interest. He makes this movie really watchable because to your point, we're not on a lot of these characters for too long. So we can't really tell if they're good or bad. We're getting off them. And we really are on him the entire film. You really are. And you know, there's bits where like his voice was replaced. Like there's that scene where uh, his love interest like goes upstairs to like her apartment that she has over this bar. He's in the bathtub. She thinks she's lying to him about how many men he's really killed because like, People are conflating his kills with Azul's kills. 
And so she takes, you know, this dagger and puts it to his balls in the bathtub and he sings this castration song. And this song is actually done by like a local musician who they like shifted the pitch up to make him sound like him. But I'm bringing this up, not just because I think the song is really funny, but because even though he's lip syncing, I think you see a lot of energy in Gallardo's eyes. I think he's carrying the mm-hmm. idea that he is singing this song. And also, I think that's just an example of the humor that I really like in this movie. Like, it, I feel like the humor, you don't really see it in the beginning, although it's very, there's kind of like a stealth joke. Like, this jail that the movie opens in is the real jail in Acuna, which is nuts. And the lady who is being the jailkeeper is the real jailkeeper at that jail. He was just like, well, she'll work for free and I don't have to get her a uniform. She already has one. And it brings actually this level of verite feel to a thing that then he can amp up with like his camera angles and the starkness and like kind of the ominous sound. And it's like this great combination of like real and not real. You know, she doesn't look like some actress that you just made pretend that she's a jailkeeper. And I feel like there's kind of funny, interesting ideas even in that. She's the jailkeeper. She doesn't get a lot of lines, but what we know is whoever gives her money is whoever side she's on. They give her money to let him in. He gives her money to let him out. It's, it is a jail, but he's acting like it's not a jail. You get a sense of the, how powerful Azul is in this neighborhood and how powerful Moko is. A lot happens, even though I think the film gets better once we're out of the jail and we see the turtle and we start to get some more jokes. I, I will say that Azul, the reveal that Azul is a prisoner, I didn't quite get that until I was like, oh, wait, is he just another guard? And then when you realize that he's actually a prisoner in the cells, I was like, oh, my God, this is such a funny character. And then he just walks out. He's got a machine gun and a cooler. Like, he is a great, uh, a really fun character. And I agree, it gets better. But there's something about how it opens up. And I think that they set the tone really, really well in what you're about to see. You're about to see something that's funny. You're about to see something that's incredibly unique. And you're going to see something that is violent. And that is a great kind of cold open for this entire film. Like it sets the stage really, really well. And I think about this time and we have, you know, Robert Rodriguez, we have Kevin Smith, we have John Singleton, uh, Quentin Tarantino, all making these movies. And there's something about Smith, Tarantino, and Robert Rodriguez that I think are very interesting, which is these guys grew up and I guess appreciated more of the grindhouse is probably a term that you know only Quentin Tarantino would use, but it like this idea that they appreciate kind of the B feature, the the niche movie. Uh, you know, Kevin Smith makes something that while visually isn't as exciting as this. It is very much specific to his point of view, what he's watching, the nerdy fandom. Quentin Tarantino obviously has written a whole book about these kind of movies, these revenge pictures, and there's a different inspiration going on here. I think Singleton's a little bit different. You know, Singleton's making something about his life and what he wanted to make, and he fights for that. And I think that's very interesting. But these three of Kevin Smith, uh, Tarantino, and Robert Rodriguez are are kind of walking this middle ground of audience-pleasing 
and independent, and they are all pulled under the Miramax banner eventually. Yeah, I mean, like now Robert Rodriguez is, well, he was Columbia at this time, but yeah. Right. But eventually they all get there. And I think that that's something really interesting about Miramax in general. Like, And again, obviously, whenever we talk about Miramax, we have to put the caveat on it. Like, this is more about what they captured in film rather than, you know, uh, a pat on the back about the people who ran Miramax. But I think that they knew how to make fun, independent film. It's the same people who took Supercop and said, oh, we'll cut it down. We'll put some, uh, we'll put a rap song in the front of it and we'll get it out here. And, you know, and like, and this is in many ways, this like this 90s time to kind of open up culturally, to see things like the fact that El Mariachi was even released in a major way as a Spanish language film, it brought people there. Same thing with, again, these Jackie Chan movies, like we are opening up our worlds a little bit to the nerds, what the nerds have been renting at, you know, the Kim's video or what they found at the at the dollar theater. And I think that this is a really unique time. I think it was, too. I think what I appreciate about it was that there were, you know, producers, executives, Columbia, Stephanie Allen. Uh, for example, is like the one who kind of really fights to bring Robert Rodriguez under her banner. A lot of people are fighting for Robert Rodriguez when like he start when this trailer for El Mariachi starts getting passed around by the agent. Basically, in short, the agent sees this trailer, is like, who are you? Send me the whole thing. He starts being like, can I be your agent? Let me send this around. And he starts like a frenzy in Hollywood where everybody wants to meet this young Robert Rodriguez. Like, how did you make this? Who are you? Come work with me. Disney throws their hat in the ring. Miramax comes late. But like Columbia really made a pitch because Columbia, Stephanie Lane was like, we just did Boys in the Hood with John Singleton. We're really trying to find like young talent representing communities. We we want to do this. We'll put out El Mariachi. We want to do your second film. We want to do this. And what I like about that moment is it's not just like, hey, kid, you have an interesting movie that's playing festivals. Have a Star War, you know? It's right. like, what do you want to do? What story do you want to tell? And they give all of these guys the chance to make a story that's what they would want to do as their follow-up. They don't just shunt them into a machine right away. Right. And I think that's a major difference because this is at a time where a non-IP uh, you know, series could actually make some money. And again, it's a low-risk, high-reward situation. You spend $7,000 on it. And yeah, you probably market it for a million. It's going to make its money back. And it's going to make it, you know, this is the Blumhouse model. And I think we we exist in this primarily in horror now. Can you do a cool idea? And then you'll actually be, you know, uh, an investor in it. You'll actually get some of this money back. Like, But we'll make it under this this banner. And you're right. I think that you know, I would love to see action movies or movies like this kind of open up. We've been talking recently about the return of the B movie, you know, and I hope we continue down this path, like these lower budgeted films that can be interesting vehicles for a new director's voice. Me you know, too. there's something about, I was talking about this to my friend the other day, like I love Kugler. I love seeing what Ryan Kugler is up to. I love what he did in Creed. I love the Black Panther series. And I'm hungry for another original Ryan Kugler film. Like I want to see him. And I know that Black Panther is so Ryan Kugler. And I know that, you know, Creed is so him, but I would love to see just blank slate. What could you do? Like what, you know, I want to see more. I just get excited. And sometimes 
these guys can get kind of shunted off in this thing. Even Taika, you know, who got to make this great film. You get this great movie, Jojo Rabbit, in 2019, but, you know, he's now existing in the Star Wars and Marvel world, and that's great too, but I want to see more of what we do in Shadows. Uh, You know, even Our Flag Means Death is great too, but I just... I just want to see more of these original ideas. And this is a movie that gets me pumped. And I also think it shows how little you need to do to feel invested. Because, yes, this is a very traditional plotline. But were you surprised at the end that the the girl died? Yeah, I mean, that's a bold move. And I feel like that's the kind of move you can make when you don't have an executive looking at your script and saying you can't let the girl die at the end. You can let the girl die at the beginning, but you can't let her die at the end. No, I was really shocked. I was like, wait, oh, she's going to come back, right? She'll come back. And he doesn't, he saves the day, but he also is injured. Like he, his hand is shot, right? Can he ever be a mariachi again? I mean, this is an interesting, you know, thing as well. He doesn't get out unscathed. I think that there's something really interesting about an ending that feels triumphant, but is also bittersweet. Yeah, no, it's true. Like, because he still can't play guitar in Desperado. He's, like, trying to teach a little kid how to play guitar, but his, like, uh, his fingering hand is still really stiff. He can only, he can only strum. I mean, right. now I'm thinking about Martin and Bru- Ed and Bruges, and I'm thinking about Banshees of Inishirid, and, like, oh, the instrument is dead, and what will you do if you cannot make your instrument, <laughs> your music? Who doesn't love a classic chocolate chip cookie? Famous Amos has been making them since the 70s, 1975 to be exact. With semi-sweet chocolate chips and a satisfying crunch, it's everything classic in one bite-sized cookie. And fans couldn't get enough. That's right. You'll find our original recipe, the one you know and love, in every bag of Famous Amos original chocolate chip cookies. Find Famous Amos anywhere you buy your favorite snacks. Go spread the word. When you get a fresh, hot McCrispy from McDonald's and you can feel the heat coming through the bag, don't try to wait till you get home. Always respect hot chicken. The McCrispy, only at McDonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. But yeah, like, he lets there be stakes here. I mean, I get sort of bored a lot of times with action movies. I appreciate that one of the tenants that was really important to Robert Rodriguez as well was like, I feel like a lot of these action films from this area are just, you know, not just the machismo of it, but like it's a type of machismo that shuts out having strong female characters as well. Mm-hmm. And so like one of the actors was like, okay, okay, I'll agree to be in your movie for free, but I want to be seen waking up in bed with like three chicks, man. And Robert Rodriguez was like, I don't love that. But if you find three girls and you're willing to have us give them also guns and let them be your bodyguards, make them tough girls. Okay. It's always finding these compromises within his limitations. Like, I don't love that trope. Can I make this trope work for me? And he always says that at the beginning of this filming, basically he and Carlos Gallardo wrote down like, what on earth do we have? You know, they had a pit right. bull. That's Carlos Gallardo's pit bull. So they put the pit bull in the movie. They had that severed head just from something else. So they're like, well, we're going to create a dream sequence and put the severed head in it. And we're going to have, you know, kind of, cool sound like i love the sound in the basketball dream where the head turns in where the basketball turns into the severed head because it's just got this like reverb and this pulse and the way the music is sort of blending in with it 
I mean, the music. I don't. I want to talk about the music for a second because I think he uses that really effectively, both for like suspense, for comedy. I actually realized I don't know anything about where the music came from. I mean, did he make the music? I don't know this, actually. I don't know if he talks about it in the book. I don't remember it. But I love the music, like, in the scene where, you know, where Azul leaves the bar. And then he, like, and the bartender is looking around at all of these corpses. And he's like, what's going to happen? And then the guy comes back in. And he's terrified. But all Azul wants to do is pay for the beer. I mean, the music is doing what his actors cannot. Well, I mean, you know, Amy, this is Robert Rodriguez. When you talk about music, I mean, he is a writer, director, and composer, he right? He did the music too? Jesus Christ. Yes. Yeah, this is, he. basically, he did everything but act. Because if he acted, <laughs> he wouldn't be able to hold the camera, right? Unless he did it as a selfie. Uh, but yeah, no, he is incredibly talented. There's a, that great uh, footage that just came out, I guess, with... Um, during the Boba Fett show that he was a showrunner of, where he's playing guitar for Grogu, or Baby Yoda, whatever you'd like to call Grogu. It would be wrong if you don't call him Grogu. But uh, but yeah, that's that's Robert Rodriguez. He is a very talented, uh, <laughs> you know, composer, musician. And, and I think that there are things in here that feel like there's a very long mariachi scene, you know, where he is saying like, okay, I see this, why you're here. This movie is only an hour and 21 minutes, right? So they're trying to fill this time, but I also feel like... Yeah, he's like, the reason there's so much slow-mo is so we can make it longer. <laughs> you know, but the movie doesn't feel empty. It's a really simple, fun plot. You know what I'm realizing? Is he built in himself in this movie without even drawing attention to it. Because, yeah. like, the mariachi shows up uh, and he's like, I play guitar. Remember in the in the opening scene? Yeah. And the journalist slash bartender is like, I don't need you. I have a one-man band. And there's that really comic set where he's like speeding up the footage and you see the guy and he's grabbing a synthesizer. And he is the mariachi band. The synthetic do-everything mariachi band. One man can do it all. That is Robert Rodriguez. <laughs> he's like, yeah. I'm doing all of it and also the music. I love that. Now, let me ask you a question about stylistically what this film does. We talked about it as being a little bit of a tribute to like spaghetti westerns. Um, but would you also say this is a noir film, right? Is there something about this? And I know that noir is often, you know, described or at least consciously recognized as like dark shadows and things like that. You could make a better argument that Sin City is his noir film, but mm -hmm. there oh, is something much. about this. This is a mistaken identity. This is a, this is a Hitchcock film in a way, right? It's a violent Hitchcock film, but there is like a little bit of cynicism and fatalism here. There's moral ambiguity because, you know, all of a sudden he is, he is a killer. He, he moves into this and there is something about this film that I feel like it does hit a few different signposts of genre. Like, I don't, I don't think it's a straightforward, it's on a revenge picture. It's, you know, it has elements of Hitchcock. It has elements of Sergio Leone. It has elements... Uh, of the Looney of, Tunes. <laughs> of the Looney Tunes. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. The sound effects of the Looney Tunes. Like, there are those... You know, it's like, that is really interesting. And 
I guess maybe just goes to show you that you can mix and match like that. You can make something that feels very uh, alive and different. I think that Edgar Wright uh, embraces this kind of style as well. You know, Edgar Wright kind of pulls from a, a multitude of different sources, you know, especially earlier in his career. And you get to see, you know, something that is not just a straight down the middle zombie film. It's also a comedy. It's also, you know, has like these, it has these bigger ideas or this mix and match. No, that is really true. And it's like funny because part of why it looks so noir is he only had the money for two lights. So some scenes have to be very, very dark. Right. He was like, well, the sun is my third light. When that goes down, we're screwed. And yet, like, yeah, you get the sense when you mash genres together like that of somebody who just loves movies and has seen a ton of them and wants to do everything, wants to do it all. Like somebody who, would, you know, was saying in interviews at the time when he was becoming, you know, this figure, this sudden out of the blue figure, like, yeah, when I was a kid, my mom would pack us all up. We'd go to revival houses. I'd watch Hitchcock films when I was a little kid and we didn't have any money for snacks. So my mom would like hide food under diaper bags. And this is kind of what raised me. I mean, it does make me think a lot about how this time period is interesting to me because you are from the 80s on really seeing filmmakers rise up with access to video stores who can watch old movies whenever they want of all sorts of genres. And they get like a broader a broader range of influences than they could if they're just stuck only seeing what was in current theaters, right? Yeah. Because when you're a little kid, you can rent anything you want and bring it home. And you start to see stuff that you wouldn't have been able to in the 70s if you weren't old enough to take yourself to the movie theater every night. I, I agree. And we are talking about people who probably were on some level inspired by Sam Raimi and like you said, the Coen brothers. But I want to ask you about Robert Rodriguez. When you look at his career next to Kevin Smith, next to a Quentin Tarantino, is it or is he as successful as them? And I would argue he's not. I think that he is respected. I think that he is a part of the culture, absolutely. But it's interesting that in many ways, he is the biggest multi-hyphenate there is, right? He's a director, he's a screenwriter, an editor, a cinematographer, a musician. He's doing it all. I he think runs a out channel. Of all, runs a channel, <laughs> yeah. which by the way is great. If you ever want to watch a great interview, watch him interviewing John Carpenter. It's aces. Uh, like he basically did his own interview series. I love it so much. But um, but there is something like he is a one-stop shop. He stays in Austin. Do you think that he maybe didn't capitalize as much as everybody else or he stayed so much in his own lane that he is incredibly successful, incredibly happy, but not having to conform to like the Hollywood system. Not that, that, that not that Kevin Smith and Quentin Tarantino fully did that. Uh, maybe Kevin Smith a little bit more. Yeah, Kevin Smith tried and then was sort of pushed back out again. Yeah, but I think that there's something really interesting that his career is steady, but not as gigantic as the others. It's funny, like... He talks about how in this period when he was going from being a guy with absolutely no food in his refrigerator at home to being flown out to L.A. and taking all these fancy dinners, that his new agent takes him in this first whirlwind before El Mariachi even comes out to the premiere of The Player, the the Robert Altman right. movie about Hollywood. And he sits there at the premiere of The Player, surrounded by movie stars, kind of bewildered to even be here in Los Angeles in this room. And he thinks to himself, if this is what LA is like, I need to make sure I work with people who are going to let me stay in Texas. 
Like he doesn't, he rejects playing the Los Angeles game from the very beginning. And in a way that makes him the most successful of the three as far as being an independent filmmaker and having that independence, I think. Right. I think. Well, it's hard to say with all like the Netflix big kids movies. I don't know. I don't know. Sharkboy, Lava Girl. Are you an independent filmmaker if you're loving Sharkboy, Lava Girl? But that's a story that one of his kids came up with. And it like, to have the independence to take your kid's idea and make a movie of it is independent. And But by the way, we're going back to Spy Kids too. I mean, like this is, like he made three movies for kids in that in that world. And he made it pretty quickly. Like Spy Kids, I think, comes out in 2001. And El Mariachi is 1992. You know, that it's, you know, Less than 10 years later, like, you know, when he really has made, it's like El Mariachi, Desperado, From Dusk Till Dawn. Uh, did he make The Faculty? I guess maybe that was maybe his. He did make The Faculty, yeah. So that maybe is his his one kind of turn where he goes a little full Hollywood. And I get, you know, Dusk Till Dawn, I think, is a, a half step there. But The Faculty feels to me like probably an interesting point in his career. He's like, hmm. I don't want to do it like this. I want to do my own thing. You know, and I think if you look at his career, you're probably not thinking about the faculty as much as you're thinking about the other stuff. Yeah, I think faculty is the one I would almost forget he made because the yeah. other ones feel like they have more of his personality on them. The stamp, the aesthetic, the look, the style, the worldview. And it's like, can I stay here and do what I want to do? And I think you see that a lot with people from Texas. So I want to hear my Texas <laughs> expert talk about that because I think when you look at people like Mike Judge or Richard Linklater, they're also doing something pretty similar. They're like, yeah, I got it. I'm here. I'm doing my own thing. I'm going to be in Texas. Yeah, I'll come out there. I'll make my thing and maybe I'll get nominated, but maybe I won't. Like they are very content to not be beholden to be accepted or work within a system that doesn't basically let them do what they want to do. You know, it's so funny. I wonder if there is something to idea that when you grow up in Texas, you grow up really infused by all of your teachers and by all of the surrounding culture of Texas to think that you're in the state that you should never bother leaving because every other state is inferior. Yeah. There's never like kind of a, you should probably leave Texas rumbling that you get. It's like, why would you ever leave Texas? No other city was like, no other state was a country. Fuck that, you know? And like, I've always believed that the heart of Texas is independence. And that when we have the leadership we have now, it is being mutated into conservatism, but independence is the, is the real pulse of that state. Right. You don't mess with me. I don't mess with you. Let me do my thing. Don't mess with Texas directors. <laughs> I mean, maybe that's part of it. Yeah. Uh, I mean, yeah. and it's weird because at the same time, there's not a ton of movies from a lot of Texas besides Austin. You know, there's not a lot of movies that I think represent San Antonio. We've got like what? Cloak and Dagger and Eight Seconds, which was like a Luke Perry bullfighting movie. And then I always struggle to think of anything else that was made in San Antonio that shows my town, which is the seventh biggest city in America, has the greatest basketball coach, even if they're not my team. Show some love for San Antonio. You got but, to. <laughs> but yeah. I love this idea of Texas being this independent film uh, voice. I mean, obviously South by Southwest embraces that, you know, in the film space. And you have this idea of these are the films that aren't going to go to Sundance. This is the ones that you're actually going to like, right? Like there's an energy there at Sundance that it's like, that's the art ones. And South by is like, these are the feel good, like party movies that we all are going to 
embrace. And they could be from great directors. They could be from small directors. It could be any which way in between. And Texas being the hub of that is really interesting because I think you would maybe think, oh, New York is the independent person. You know, people like Woody Allen, he doesn't leave. But maybe in Texas, you can make something that can still be profitable without breaking the bank and continue to work and keep on making more and more and more. And that's what it seems like Robert Rodriguez has really done. It's like, oh, he doesn't have to live up to making $150 million on opening weekend or, you know, some astronomical number. He just gets to make what he wants when he wants. He can sell it to Netflix. He can make his own network. He could do whatever he wants to do. It's a very, it's very freeing, I think, as a director to feel like I don't have to work within the system because I'm not losing the system any money. I'm actually just taking the money I had and putting it back in. And it's it's like a... It's almost like his original plan. I'm going to sell this one, use the money, make this one, use the money, make that one. Yeah. I mean, that's also how M. Night Shyamalan works too. I will make this movie on my own. I'll cover all the costs up front. I'm beholden to nobody else but me is M. Night's plan. I'll I'll put in all the money. I'll rent the whole hotel to shoot old at, you know, at the beach. I'll yeah. take care of paying for all of the COVID stuff and then I'll sell it and then I'll use that money for my next one. It, it in a way that's almost what I wish the entire economy worked like, worked more like, I'm not an economist, but like instead of this like investment growth, we demand all of this profit for everything. I love subsistence. I make enough to keep doing what I'm doing and you are all making enough to keep doing what you're doing and buying tickets. And if we all just had a subsistence model instead of an endless growth model, I do feel like that'd be healthier in terms of diversity in the entertainment marketplace. Somebody once told me that you could never make a $15 million movie because you need to spend at least $30 million to advertise it. I've heard that too. And that's such a crazy idea. But I guess, you know, in a weird way, maybe we're coming back down to that because there are so many ways to stream things. There's so many things. You can't, you're not going to have those big budget movies. Like you have to kind of get people in different ways. How do you get them? How do you engage them? And maybe we are coming to a point where, again, I know this is the thesis we keep on coming back to, but this could be the future. More niche films that are made under the radar that have less expectations. Now, it doesn't work out great for the business because you get probably actors being paid less and movies being made less and you're working twice as hard um, and the success ratio is scattered. You know, whereas if you you know, worked on something in the past, you knew it's going to get, it, people are going to see it or at least hear about it. Here, you could say, oh yeah, I did three movies last year and I would have no idea what they are. Like there's just, there are things I just have not seen and maybe even not even heard about, you know, because again, we are so in our content tunnels that, you know, Netflix can advertise one thing to you and one thing to me and we miss the other ones or we don't have, you know, Paramount Plus or we don't have this, you know, Hulu or Disney Plus to see the thing that we want to see. So, I guess maybe the longevity is everyone that used to be this great big director. If you want to continue making your own independent stuff, you have to kind of take on the character actor point of view. Now it's like, I'm just going to work cool, do interesting things and keep on working, keep on trying to, to get my stuff out there. And then if you have a moment or you have a big idea, maybe you get that shot. Yeah. I mean, I keep thinking to myself, what do you need to have a movie that people want to see? And I'm only coming at this through the, the point of view of being a critic who, you know, like looks at festival programs to figure out what I want to see is sent emails all the time. Will you see this? Will you see this? Will you see this? Will you see this? And to me, it feels like the most valuable thing 
right now is a premise so interesting that you can mention it in one sentence. And I'm like, yes, I don't know what that is, but I need to know what that is. You know, right. Like cocaine bear, cocaine bear could have been better, but like you have a premise that I'm like, that sounds brand new to me. I'm very curious. And as soon as the premise is like a young girl is possessed by a devil, I'm just immediately out. I've seen 90 of those. And it's really hard to get me with a premise that I'm bored by. Somebody said something really interesting that we are in the time of films that you would pitch to your friends over like late night dinner at a diner. Yeah. And I feel like that is a good thing. Like we're not, you know, that's the thing that becomes buzzy. The thing that becomes buzzy is I haven't heard about it before. Now, this is a premise that I think is kind of done, you know, but done in a very unique way. So maybe the the difference is, is like, can you execute a familiar premise in a unique way? Or can you give us something that you think would never be made in a in a, a way that could be profitable because it's so bizarre that it actually becomes something that everyone needs to see? Right. Because Cocaine Bear is simply that. Yeah. And this one instead is sold on, can you believe this guy pulled it off for $7,000? Imagine getting some friends, an old film camera, and $7,000 that you receive for lending out your body to medical research and making a movie that's a hit. Well, that's what a young Texan did, and his film is opening today in Houston and other cities across the country. Carlos Aguilar has his story. And that becomes the story, you know? And, and I think there's conflicted feelings for Robert Rodriguez about that. Like, he's really telling Columbia, this is a home movie. You don't have to put this out. This is a home movie. I don't know if I want people to see it. Why would anybody go to see this? Oh, God, we're the opening night at Telluride? What? Oh, God, we're at Toronto? People are going to watch this. I don't know. The more you blow it up, the the weirder it likes. I don't like the guy you hired to do subtitles. They're going to cost too much money. Can I do the subtitles? And he's really freaking out about this because, man, like, yeah, it's like if you saw my email drafts and then you put them on a screen, I'd lose my mind. My drafts of my like reviews. Oh, God, my first sentences before I read them and read them and read them. No way. And like, you know, I, I think even as this is happening, it's like so surreal for him. He's like, we won the audience award at Sundance. Why? What's going on? You know, and it's kind of exciting to think about this time. And like, you know, his first screening, he ever sees this movie on a theater is at Telluride. And it's the Telluride where Quentin Tarantino is there for Reservoir Dogs. And I love the idea of these two young guys being at this beautiful, very posh film festival and looking at each other and being like, you are a kindred spirit. You know, they meet when they're on a panel together about like, you know, young filmmakers or something like that. And they have this first conversation and going through this festival circuit year together and then being like, um, you're in Cameo and Desperado. Let's write a movie together. Let's do four rooms. And the freedom to get money to do those things just sounds so cool. And I love the idea of imagining that there's like filmmakers right now on like a film festival circuit being like, do this thing with me. I'll do this thing with you. Okay, let's team up because I don't know what else they're supposed to do right now. I just feel like the model is broken. Well, I mean, it's not probably for us to figure out because we can see where it's going. But I think that right now it's this moment of transition. It's the reason why there are all these layoffs. It's the reason why these streamers are suffering. You know, they spend so much money to get a hit. Um, but the truth is, is something unique pops up and that becomes the hit. You know, no one would have thought that Stranger Things would be this juggernaut. And that, of course, it's a TV show. But there are these odd things that take over culture. And I think what we often do is take the wrong lesson. It's like, oh, Megan's a hit. 
Make more Megans? No, I think that- Yeah, make more killer dolls? No, 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 no. It's not the killer doll. It's the something else. You know, and I think that A24 is doing a great job of always feeding that. Like, what is the interesting thing? But where's that crossover? And maybe you'll get it sometimes with everything, everywhere, all at once. And especially for someone like you who hates a multiverse, (laughs) you know, they are able to figure out a way in and make it a little bit different. So I'm excited. Yeah. You know, there's this game that my boyfriend Adam and I play where we'll like put on a movie and we feel pretty certain that in the first five minutes, you can tell whether or not a movie is going to be worth watching. And our game is trying to figure out what is it about those five minutes that lets you know that you're in good hands. Yeah. Like, how can you tell? Like, and we're, you know, we're, 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 we don't know the answer to it. We, we play it with every single game. Like, is it, does the actor not hold our attention? Is the scenes not feeling grounded? Does, do I feel like I trust where the camera is put? Like, what is it that lets you know that this director has a point of view? And I do feel like when you put El Mariachi on, you know that this director has a point of view. I feel like in every scene, every camera setup, every camera movement, you feel intelligence behind the camera. You feel like somebody who considered it. You don't feel like somebody was rushing it and didn't care. And I feel like sometimes you can just tell that. You tell you can tell that somebody's like, uh, put the camera there. We got to go. We got to go. We got to go. And the consideration, there's something in consideration that I know is the secret, but I don't know how you can feel the consideration all the time. I just know when you can. And I know when you can't. I guess I feel like I'm describing porn. I know it when I see it. Huh? Am I making any sense to you? You are. You are. I think that there is something very true to that. Like, it's the reason why we stay tuned after a commercial break or not, you know, when we had commercials. Uh, But I agree. Like, you, I knew that from the opening of this movie, I was in good hands. I was excited to see what happened. I was excited to go on this journey. And it's got to pass the smell test. I mean, that's that's part of it. Like, you just know, like, there's something, you know, it could have the best premise of all time. But it's like a, a first date. Like you're just sussing somebody out. And sometimes it might be not your thing, but it's somebody else's thing. That's fine too. Yeah. And you know, there is something in just the competence, the quality in this movie that is letting you know Robert Rodriguez understands what an audience is thinking and he's going to play with you. When you watch this movie, like, and he escapes the first time by hopping into the back of the truck. And then later in the movie, he finds another truck and he hops into the back of that. And he, you're thinking oh, is he just using the same trick twice? Robert Rodriguez is like, no, this second truck is actually the killer's. And he's jumped into the killer's truck and he figures out a way to play with you, to play with your expectations, to like always be keeping things fresh. He figures out in this movie how to build a joke. You know, the whole thing about like lighting matches off of people's faces. He builds on that. Like it's just very, very well considered. And as I'm giving him credit for a lot of little things, the sound design. In the chase sequences, as he's running around, there's the sound of so many foot scuffs and the sliding, and it just feels so energetic. And it doesn't even all have to make sense. Why does everybody in this town have like the same wall decoration of a mace? No clue, but it's very, very funny. You know, why is there a shot of a weird dog wearing sunglasses? I have no idea. But you know what? In Bruges had those weird shots of like the very strange dog who looked like he was boiled and the other dog in the window looking out the window. And maybe film should just make room for random stuff that catches your attention. No clue. Why is there a moment in this movie that just straight up turns into David Lynch? 
you know, where he like plays a song for the audience at her uh, at her bar and the applause goes on so long that you're like, is this another dream? Are we dead? What is happening? Maybe it's even just in the fact that, like, Robert Rodriguez is like, okay, my main bad guy doesn't even speak Spanish, but I'm going to direct him in a way where just the way he says the lines has pop. The way he says, guitarita. Eres muy talentoso. Hazte tocar muy bien. Tu guitarita. Pues ya no. Whatever it is, I just feel like he thought about this movie and he cared about this movie and it makes me care about this movie absolutely even if he didn't want me to see this movie i still care i agree and that's part of it passion i think that that's why i go back to talking about tommy Wiseau and saying that you can't redo the room even though that they've now tried to make another tommy Wiseau film it's like the tommy Wiseau's the room isn't bad it is awful but it's a passionately done bad film and there's something that makes the room infinitely better than the ginger dead man or sharknado or all these movies that are trying to get you and that's why i feel like why i'm upset about tommy Wiseau's new movie because it doesn't feel like a tommy Wiseau movie it doesn't feel like tommy wants to make a killer shark movie he wants to make you know tennessee williams drama or maybe you know something that's a little bit more personal i think that that is the secret sauce uh about that film. There's tons of bad films out there, but that one was so kind of oblivious to everything that I think it made it special. I agree. And yet there were people at the time that El Mariachi came out who were like, whatever, I do not care. Uh, One of these reviews that was negative comes from the Arizona Republic. The headline is, unknowns Mariachi made for just 7K was still waste of money. And the critic writes, what a great story. Unknown guy with a movie camera makes a picture for only $7,000. Unfortunately, that's the great story behind the movie. The story in the movie stinks. El Mariachi proves that only an amateur can make a movie for 7 k that's every bit as bad as the professionals can make for $7 million. If you go to the movies for entertainment or enlightenment, Rodriguez has not accomplished anything. It is a dull, third-rate gangster film with a few funny moments, most of them created by juvenile camera stunts. As for the acting, if the entire cast performed for nothing, the price was right. Damn, <laughs> San Antonio. Arizona, Arizona. Damn, just... <laughs> Arizona. So, Amy, you know, we've talked a lot about this kind of unique voice. And I think the name that we've mentioned a lot here is somebody we haven't ever covered on the show, which is Sam Raimi. And I thought it would actually be interesting to see, in many respects, What Robert Rodriguez did with Desperado, we'll get to see what Sam Raimi did with his Desperado by watching Evil Dead 2. Does that make sense? So basically, Robert (laughs) Rodriguez made El Mariachi, then he went to make Desperado. We just talked about El Mariachi, but why not now we see what Sam Raimi did when he got some money and got to redo his first kind of big hit? I would love to watch Evil Dead 2. Absolutely. Let's do it. I love this and get ready for Evil Dead Rise. So this is going to be a little bit of an Evil Dead time, but I love getting into Evil Dead 2. I think it will really capture a lot of the stuff. And again, we don't have a map. We don't know where we're going. We're just following our instincts. And this is a great, uh, great little fun run we're having. So take a listen to the trailer for Evil Dead 2. 
four years ago in this quiet forest, in this cozy cabin, something happened. Something so frightening. Something so deadly. Something so evil. We prayed it would never happen again. Now, from the creator of Evil Dead, comes Evil Dead 2. Well, Amy, until next week, but a big thank you to our producer, Josh Richmond, our associate producer, Jessica Cisneros, our engineer, Casey Holford, our EPs, Cody Fisher and Colin Anderson, our MVP, Molly Reynolds, our theme song by Michael Cassidy, our fan art by Kim Troxall. Please subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, rate, review, and follow us on Apple and also on Amazon. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram, and you can talk about all these movies on the Paul Shear Discord. Just go to discord.gg slash Paul Shear. Unspooled t-shirts are available at tpublic.com slash unspooled, but you can also get your very own deck of unspooled playing cards, which are absolutely gorgeous, all designed by Kim Troxell at podswag.com. Just find the unspooled show and you'll see it right there. You can hear past episodes of the show and bonuses like screen test on Stitcher Premium and for the official API, that's the Paul and Amy Institute list of our favorite films that we've ever done from the show. You can head on over to unspooledpod.com. doesn't love a classic chocolate chip cookie? Famous Amos has been making them since the 70s, 1975 to be exact. With semi-sweet chocolate chips and a satisfying crunch, it's everything classic in one bite-sized cookie. And fans couldn't get enough. That's right. You'll find our original recipe, the one you know and love, in every bag of Famous Amos original chocolate chip cookies. Find Famous Amos anywhere you buy your favorite snacks. Go spread the word. When you get a fresh, hot McCrispie from McDonald's and you can feel the heat coming through the bag, don't try to wait till you get home. Always respect hot chicken. The McCrispie, only at McDonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.